Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased to welcome Mark Campanali to the podcast. Mark is the founder of the Carbon Tracker Initiative, a non-profit think tank launched to pinpoint with clarity how global capital markets have failed to deal with climate risk. Mark developed the unburnable carbon capital markets thesis, the idea that there are substantial fossil fuel energy sources which cannot be burnt if the world is to adhere to the necessary carbon budgets to limit global warming. Mark commissioned and was editor of Unburnable Carbon, Are the World's Financial Markets Carrying a Carbon Bubble? report that launched in November 2011. Thank you very much, Mark, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. Great. So um, I'm really uh, looking forward to talking to you today. Uh, the, the great work you're doing at Carbon Track, Carbon Tracker, uh, and uh, um, more recently some of the reports you've done, particularly on the carbon bubble. Um, I'm really interested to get your views on that. Can you just tell me a little bit about your own background, Mark? Yeah, my background. I trained as an agricultural economist, and I went into the city of London in the late 1980s to set up some of the first of the ecological investment funds. I met an amazing woman called Tessa Tennant, yes, who yes. had founded the Ecology Fund at Jupiter Asset Management, and I went to work with her. I had a lot of fun, and I then carried on in the city, mostly investing in what you would call green enterprises. Great, great. Yes, I, I had an interview with uh, some time ago with Tessa, and unfortunately she's now passed, but a very pioneering yes. and, and interesting lady. Um, so what's the background? Can you talk about the carbon tracker, the work you do there, and um, how, how, how you got involved in that, Mark? Yeah, so the City of London, you know, it's a financial centre, one of the two biggest financial centres in the world. Um, and if you want to raise money and you're an oil and gas company or a mining company and through the 90s and, and noughties, a coal company, you'd come to London. And the big asset manager I was working for then at that time uh, was one of the biggest in London and people would go there. And I noticed a lot of people were buying into coal IPOs, initial public offerings on the stock market. Um, I was struck by that, along with the other founder of Carbon Tracker, Nick Robbins. How is it possible that the more we knew about the science of climate change, how is it possible that people could still be buying coal companies, coal stocks for, for people's pension schemes? And uh, one of them that listed a company called Extrata, one of the biggest coal companies in the world. I picked up the document, the prospectus that investors read before you invest and on this 300-page document, there was just 20 lines about climate change risk. And we thought, well, that can't be right either. So what's going on? Um, and so we thought, well, why don't we take the world's top coal, oil, and gas companies? Let's have a look at all their plans. How much oil and gas investments will they make? And how much CO2 will that produce? And let's link that back to a carbon budget. How much CO2 can you release into the atmosphere? before the world's temperatures go above, well above pre-industrial levels to, you know, one, two, three, four, five degrees. And um, that idea, which is a very simple idea, how much CO2 is in the reserves of Shell and Exxon and all the others, 
turned into this thesis we call the carbon bubble. And what we discovered is that there was something like three to four, maybe more, five times more CO2 in the reserves and the resources of these publicly traded companies than we could possibly burn to stay below two degrees. And that difference between the two, how much can we release before we go above two degrees, and that multiple, we, we just called it simply a carbon bubble. There's financial bubbles, we call this one a carbon bubble. And, uh, and from that point on, I think it dawned on a lot of investors and around the world and financial regulators that there was a problem at the heart of the business models of the world's largest fossil fuel companies. They cannot burn at all. Most of their reserves have to stay in the ground. And if that was true, then pension fund trustees could then ask the question, why are we investing even more of our people's retirement funds into businesses that could potentially end the world as we know it? And, and doesn't that strike at the heart of the idea of fiduciary duty, the idea to look after the interests of people's savings. And so that they, um, the genesis of the idea of the carbon bubble and stranded assets and unburnable carbon and became this nonprofit called the Carbon Tracker Initiative, which is where I'm sat today. And uh, seven years on, there's now about 25 of us, and all we do today is analyze all these coal, oil, and gas companies um, and the energy transition and what we think will happen to the world in, in coming years. Right, right. Fascinating. Now, I mean, this is, uh, a, a, I mean, a major, major finding, a major uh, insight into um, the sustainability, the financial, the finances of of of, of these, uh, you know, uh, huge, huge uh, dominant companies, and also clearly major implications for the pace of uh, carbon uh, emissions and so forth. Now, what was the reaction to this report? You'd imagine this, this, is, this is really big news. Well, what was the reaction to the re report? And, 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 and what is, uh, what, what's happened since then broadly? Yeah, so um, when we tried to launch the report, a, an accountancy firm, a law firm, said, oh, come and launch this report. We know you, Mark, we know your work. And then the, the night before launching the report at this law firm, I can't tell you which one is one of the big ones, one of the partners rang me up and said, uh, Mark, I've read your report. And I thought, well, that's good. You know, the guy's read the report. And, and then he said, um, you can't, you can't, you can't um, launch this report at our offices because it's, it's so controversial. And I, I thought, well, it's not that controversial, surely. And um, anyway, so I persuaded him that we could launch it. But he said, none of my staff will be in the room when you launch a report because it, it strikes at the heart of the business of, um, of what we do, which is to advise a lot of these companies. So initially, I think there was a bit of a kind of, gosh, maybe there's something here that we that is going to have quite an impact. Um, but then the newspapers picked it up and the Financial Times I ran a story about it and said um, uh, investors dismissed idea of um, carbon bubble um, as not credible. Okay. And uh, so a little bit of skepticism, which we, of course, we expected that. And then a few months later, Lord Stern, um, you know, Lord Stern, the guy behind the Stern economics report, he wrote about this in the Financial Times where he set out our arguments and then things changed very quickly. A lot of investors got in touch. We presented to pension schemes and investment banks. 
And the Norwegian government pension scheme got, was one of the first to get in touch to say, let's look at your numbers. And they reran the numbers and found incredible. And then uh, two years later, the Financial Times wrote another article in contrast where they said, uh, of, of the ideas that environmental campaigners have come up with, the idea of stranded assets and the carbon bubble, none has been more potent than this idea. And so what that reflected was a sea change in thinking. And I want to tell you why that sea change happened. I mean, firstly, I think analysts hadn't really found what you would think of as a benchmark. Um, so Shell could say, yeah, our plan's completely fine. But when you look at all the companies together, they can't burn it all. So together, we were able to say there was a problem. And that then allowed analysts to work out, well, what did that mean for individual companies like BP and Shell and Exxon? And then investors started to do their own evaluation. But without doubt, the most important thing that happened to change things for us um, was the publication by Bill McKibben, the American campaigner, in Rolling Stone magazine. He wrote this article called, and if you go online to read it, uh, we're told by Rolling Stone it's one of the most downloaded articles they've ever had. It's called Global Warming's Terrifying New Maths. Uh, except because it was because it was American, it was Global Warming's Terrifying New Maths because they, know, they don't have the S in it. And, uh, and it was uh, featured on the front page next to a picture of Justin Bieber. I think possibly readers were buying it for Justin Bieber, not for this <laughs> article. But um, that article set out the case um, for fossil fuel divestment. And Bill took a heading from our, one of the headings from one of the chapters of our first report called Unburnable Carbon, Are the World's Financial Markets Carrying Carbon Bubble? And that, that paragraph heading was called Do the Maths. And he took that. Um, to launch his Do the Maths tour around the world, and particularly around the US, around student campuses, to faith groups, to foundations, to university endowments, calling on them to divest from fossil fuels. Now, um, in itself, you'd think, well, what effect is that going to happen? And let me tell you what happened. It, the trustees of hundreds, literally hundreds, and probably thousands of pension schemes and endowments wrote to their fund managers, people like Goldman Sachs and UBS and Schroeder's, the biggest fund managers in the world who managed their endowments saying, why are you still investing in fossil fuels? And it caused the analysts at these firms, at these big investment managers, the biggest investment managers in the world, to go away and start looking at the numbers. And, and we collected the reports, many of them published reports on the carbon bubble and stranded assets. And this had a what you probably call a catalytic effect, a knock-on effect that rolled around the world of trustees, financial advisors, investment managers, all looking at the carbon bubble question. And so we roll on to where we are today, August 2019, since we launched the report, and more importantly, since Bill McKibben and 350.org launched the investment came, campaign, over $8 trillion, $8 trillion, that's like kind of getting to be real money, has announced that divestment from coal, oil and gas, or all three. And many pension schemes have said they won't invest in coal anymore. And one of the larger insurance companies, there's a French insurer called AXA, they wrote to us to say that when they read our report, they dumped $500 million worth of coal bonds. And so there, there we were. And there, at this time, okay, so Carbon Tracker, there's 25 of us, but at that time, you know, there was only three or four of us to get people contacting us saying this is 
how they responded, how they reacted to our research. It was, you know, it's quite amazing. It was quite sobering to think that what we took as a very kind of simple, straightforward idea that people were reacting in this way. And even today, the divestment movement just rolls on. And um, Carbon Tracker, just this year, we've had inquiries from three, four, five major pension schemes managing the, the ones we've been dealing with would probably have, what, $500 billion between them, um, asking for our views and advice and, and information and data on how they can divest from fossil fuels. So it's been quite an amazing ride. Well, extraordinary, the power of an idea, an, an idea, a timely idea, um, a timely insight and you know, a profoundly uh, important one. I, I guess important to, to understand, you know, why does the carbon bubble matter and what could possibly happen because as we know bubbles burst tend to burst deflating is another matter we could talk about that but what why why does the carbon bubble matter so if you invest in a uk pension scheme and you're a member of the public and you put in a pound something like 15 pence of that one pound is going to go into fossil fuel companies and two of the largest companies on the stock market are going to be Shell and BP. And so the fossil fuel industry is intimately entwined with financial markets. And London is one of the more exposed of the world's financial centers. There's a lot of coal listed on the London Stock Exchange. So it's important for the reason of where people invest their savings. It's important to do with the economy. Because a pound invested in fossil fuels is not a pound invested in renewable energy at a time when we should be making this shift. So there's economic choices. Do pension schemes, do we choose to create the world that we want with our investments? Or do we want to gamble with an industry from the past that is heating up the planet in a way that scientists tell us will make the world not... Um, not inhabitable if we go above three degrees of warming. We're well on the way to, to two degrees. And unfortunately, um, we'll see weather systems in this century that the world has not seen for tens of thousands of years. And so we've got some real choices to make with what we do with our money. So, um, And what would happen if the bubble burst? Well, Carbon Tracker, we in our first report, we never said, look, divest from fossil fuels. Our second report on the carbon bubble, which we called Stranded Assets and Wasted Capital, simply posed the question that if you can't burn what's already been financed, why are we investing millions and billions more in finding, finding new reserves of coal and oil and gas? And, and over the next couple of decades, um, the International Energy uh, Agency in Paris uh, believes that the world will invest something like $15 trillion in expanding the fossil fuel economy. And many of the oil and gas companies are forecasting a 20% increase in demand for, for oil and gas. So our concern is an economic and a financial one, which is it's a misuse of people's savings. It's a misuse of uh, the, the financial system that we have, that where money should be used for more productive uses. It's a big gamble on climate change that could be a disaster and destroy other people's assets from flooding and from extreme weather events and from droughts. That's going to cause financial damage. Um, and if 
we don't slowly unwind this carbon bubble, I think we think what will happen will be an inevitable policy response in decades ahead. Governments will suddenly say, stop. You know, can you imagine a a hurricane hits Mar-a-Lago in Florida, followed by another one that hits Trump Tower in New York. Even when that happens, I think Trump would say, hang on a minute. You know, even the climate skeptics would say, stop. And there'll be a very abrupt change. And governments would say, let's stop burning coal and let's stop producing oil and gas. And, and what we're trying to do as carbon tracker is avoid the carbon bubble bursting, avoid this kind of financial catastrophe. And what we're looking for is a steady energy transition to a low carbon future. So the, the first report from Carbon Tracker, we actually said that it's the role of financial regulators to come in to maintain orderly and stable markets. And if anybody listening reads our first report on the unburn, unburnable carbon, the carbon bubble report, it's actually a long letter to the Bank of England and to financial regulators saying, step in, stop markets from financing new fossil fuel production, do your job of maintaining an orderly and stable market. And so the first people we went to see with the report, um, th this was Nick Robbins and uh, Jeremy Leggett, myself, and our current chairman, uh, Saka Nausenby. Uh, each of us in our own time went, or went together to see the Bank of England with this analysis. And I was asked by the Bank of England to present the research to something called the Financial Stability Board, which was created by the G20. This was about five years, six years ago, um, to all the world's leading central banks about this thesis. And then a few months later, Mark Carney, who's the governor of the Bank of England, uh, gave his lecture at Lloyd's of London, where he talked about unburnable carbon taken from, you know, a phrase taken from our first report and the risk of climate change. And he announced his task force on climate-related financial disclosure, which picked up on many of the things we asked for, which is that companies should disclose to their shareholders uh, how climate change may be a threat to their business models and the ability of oil companies or coal companies to sell their products. And so um, to answer your question again directly, how do we avoid the carbon bubble is to, for, for regulators and for accountants and for auditors and for pension fund trustees to all do their job together to slowly let down the carbon bubble. And the first thing they must do um, is stop investing in new fossil fuel production. And if you're listed on the London Stock Exchange, you have to prepare a business plan which is consistent with the Paris Agreement, which means net zero carbon by 2050. And what that means is annual reductions in emissions. And what that means is you sell less oil and gas and less coal every year. Yeah. When you publish your report, you would think that the result would be people would say, sell oil companies, sell fossil fuel companies. They're, you know, their assets are a fraction. They're never going to be able to realize you know, all of these assets. They're overvalued. And, and therefore, for investors to sell the shares. No? And yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that fund managers have to draw that conclusion themselves. Um, and many of them have, have drawn that conclusion. And many pension schemes have sold coal, not for reasons of, of ethics, not even for reasons of climate change. They've just come to the conclusion 
that this sector is dying very quickly and has no viable future. Um, what we have to do, though, is, is move very quickly to make this transition. And so many pension schemes are, are what's called passively invested, which means they just buy the index, they buy everything on the stock market and just allow the market just to do its thing. I think the crisis is calling for much more assertive action and groups like Legal and General and Impacts and Aviva Investors and other major investment institutions have launched strategies which allow pension schemes to very quickly get out of fossil fuels and move towards a portfolio which is at least aligned with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. Right. So it, it sounds like what you're saying, Mark, as well, that the, the divestment program has had a, a, a substantial impact. I mean, you talk about you know, these kind of mind-boggling sums that it's very difficult to really understand what, what, what they actually mean. But what's your kind of uh, summary of the impact of the divestment movement? I mean, besides the actual sums of money involved, how it's changed the actual way that we look at the uh, fossil fuel industry, um, the way investors look at it, and the way um, uh, that you know the, 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 the companies themselves have behaved? Yeah, the fossil fuel divestment movement has had a profound impact on the debate about climate change, and particularly the role of the fossil fuel industry. Without it, I don't think um, the world would have moved as quickly as it has. The financial markets have had against the fossil fuel industry. Um, and every day there's new stories about pension schemes or university endowments that are divesting. So it has had a profound and positive impact in raising awareness. Because in some, some ways, um, people say that the extremes define the middle. And on one end, you've got climate skeptics, and on the other end, you've got people who really understand the science and want to move quickly. And I think the divestment movement has dragged skeptics or those not willing to listen into the middle to, of the debate to look at the facts. And let's be honest, pension fund trustees, bankers, fund managers are some of the most uh, conservative people in the world and are often the most dismissive of um, things like the campaign. Uh, but actually what has happened is the campaigners have dragged them into the center of the debate about climate change. They've dragged them into a place that they don't want to, they want to be invisible, but now they're visible. And it's really forcing them to look at the issues and ultimately their responsibility. If you are invested in a fossil fuel company, then you, by definition, own the problem of climate change because you've put money in it. And so you're part of the part, part of the problem, but also part of potentially the solution because it's within your hands to decide what to do. And reallocating pension fund money away from fossil fuels into clean, reliable uh, energy is what many pension schemes should be doing today. And many have actually made that choice. So there's clearly been momentum in the UK and uh, Mark Carney and uh, others have, have um, made these arguments and so forth. And it's, uh, there's momentum there. What about in the United States? Yeah, the um, momentum around climate risk uh, does vary according to geography. So um, Europe, particularly Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries, Countries like the Netherlands and France are very climate aware amongst the investment community. Um, 
Less so in America, not to be no, not no surprise there amongst people in Wall Street. But having said that, there is a global initiative called Climate Action 100, which is a coalition of 32 trillion dollars of asset owners who are working together on climate change, and it's chaired by a, a U.S. pension scheme and Simpson from from uh, Calpers, which is the California state retirement scheme. So there is awareness in the US, but albeit it's on the East Coast and the West Coast. Where I have a little bit more concern is a part of the world which is still financing new coal, um, and that is in Asia. And their uh, awareness is not as great as it is in either the US or in Europe. And so we must really turn our attention to encouraging investors in the financial centers of China and you know, around Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia, and particularly Japan, that they too should be addressing the question of the carbon bubble and reallocating capital into clean energy. It, it seems that the, the reaction of the fossil fuel industry generally is, you'd have to say, sluggish. There just does not seem to have been a, you know, a, 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 a transformation in, in the way the industry operates. And, and we need nothing less than that on the time frame and the urgency of the problems we're facing. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that's probably right. I mean, the time scale is everything. Um, pension schemes are often investing over a 50-year period. Somebody joins age 20, they retire age 70, so that's 50 years. And during that time period of 50 years, the world will have transformed for somebody invest, starting um, a, a scheme today. The world will look very different in 50 years' time. And so this is forcing... Um, pension funds to really think of the questions around longevity, around what the world should look like when people retire, around what's the point of a pension? What's the point of a pension if there's no world worth retiring into? And it's forcing them to think, well, actually, what can we do? Can we start to mobilize the assets into something that is more sustainable? So a lot of these questions, these philosophical questions are being asked by pension fund trustees and their advisors. But you make it sound, it's like it's a philosophical, I mean, these are urgent. I mean, we're talking about existential crisis, you know, talking about we're already at 1.5, 1.6 degrees, where yeah. possibly even more, the IPCC, brilliant as it is, is is generally felt to be a very conservative organization. We've, we've, we've breached every uh, target that a scientist expected in 10 or 20, even, you know, 30 years away. This is urgent. And, you know, for investors to be thinking about the philosophical implications, I mean, this report's been out for many years now. And it's, you know, the writing is on the wall. It's, it used to say the power of, of, of an idea. It's, it's, you know, black and white. If they take the, the oil out, we're gonna, it's going to destroy the planet. And if they don't take the oil out, then these companies are massively you know, overvalued and, and we're in danger of a massive financial crisis, which would only exacerbate the other kinds of problems and, and our ability to deal with the, 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 the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, you're right. But let the, why do I say it's a philosophical question? I'll tell you why. It's for one simple reason that most people think that these problems, the climate crisis is going to be dealt with by government. Yeah. A lot of trustees say, look, if you don't like coal and you don't like oil, pass a law to make it illegal, leave us alone, go off and become a politician. So actually what has happened is that has been reversed on its head and people have suddenly dawned on them that actually we can't wait for politicians to, to move. 
uh, this isn't just a case of let's wait until oil has run out or coal has been banned. I think what we've seen a transformational change in the last five years is that uh, investors, financial institutions are suddenly saying, well, actually, we have a responsibility too. And that that's the question that is still being asked today by some trustees. Is it really our problem or is it somebody else's problem? And on that one, I would say we're winning and we're winning quite quickly, which is why this $32 trillion coalition, Climate Action 100, great website, by the way, is such an important um, uh, initiative of the last 18 months, is it shows that it's possible for private sector actors like investors to mobilize outside of government. And as I said earlier, the reason for that is because of pressure put on by civil society, like the divestment movement, to force pension funds to move much more quickly. And what have they actually achieved? Well, its goal is to bring management uh, attention on the climate crisis and to get management to produce business plans which are consistent with the goals of well below two degrees. Now, some say, well, it's just another talking shop, which it may well be. Um, others are sort of saying, well, it brings the largest shareholders uh, together to, with one voice to tell companies to act. That's how I see it. But the proof is going to be in the pudding. Some see it as a delaying tactic to not divest. Uh, I think more likely that it will happen that um, companies will not respond adequately and then investors will start to have to be more assertive. And what I mean by more assertive, they'll have to start removing board directors from companies. They may even have to move away management and put in new management to put in place wind down and run down plans. Uh, there's no there's no time for um, sort of soft conversations uh, anymore. I think we have to be much more assertive with companies about what we expect them to do. Yeah, I, I guess underlying this at the heart of this is the reality that uh, the current financial system, the current system we have, that you know companies are uh, meant to be trying to maximize their profits, and or according to uh, well, uh, some some theories of uh, fiduciary responsibility at least. Um, although uh, the questions in some areas, uh, I know at the moment, but and also investors as well. Investors are supposed to be you know trying to um, maximize returns, or they've got a fiduciary responsibility as well um but um clearly the, the the other side of the coin is that the risks the underlying risks so many companies would probably you know argue that why should why they, why should they change in the sense that they have a responsibility to you know build the business and so forth but the risks are clearly just from that fr frame of mind that way of looking at, at things risks are increasing and to what extent is that driving as well the way uh, uh, investors and indeed companies are responding yeah um, well one of the things driving it and it goes back to an earlier point which is um, I think if we can't finance can't burn what's already been financed why are companies going to look for more oil and gas and why are we still funding construction of coal-fired power stations and the case really is that investors are no longer believing in the business model of the fossil fuel industry. And whilst you say, okay, these businesses are making money, well, actually, the share price of Exxon has barely moved in the last 10 years as the S&P, um, the Standard & Poor's Index of the US market has gone through the roof. I think what that reflects um, is that investors no longer 
believe that the profits they've seen in the past from oil and gas and from coal will be repeated in the future. And so this financial argument, this fiduciary argument of getting out of fossil fuels is getting stronger and stronger. And this actually acts as a trigger for investors to say to companies, look, we don't, we don't have faith anymore in your business plans. We want to see a business model where you wind down instead of investing these billions and trillions in new expansion, let's hand back that money to shareholders so we can invest it in something more productive. So I think there's been a sea change in thinking by investors towards the sector uh, that is growing and growing around the world as climate awareness increases. Yes, I suppose the other side of the coin, and not wanting to play the devil's advocate here, but you know, uh, energy transitions, um, according to uh, people like Baclav Schmiel and, and people who've looked at this in, in, in some detail, take uh, uh, substantial periods of time. And indeed, they have been growing from each uh, transition from one energy source to another. So and, and the reality is as well is that you know notwithstanding some progress in some areas we are hugely dependent on fossil fuels and notwithstanding the the, the the collapsing price of you know some solar energy and so forth so within that there you, you know need to temper one's um, uh, perspective with 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 real re, some kind of i would guess realization that in 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 a normal set of scenarios or normal unfolding scenarios we're, we're gonna we're going to be quite reliant on the fossil fuel industry for some time. Yeah, I know you're playing devil's advocate. I think a lot of people have looked at Backlash Schmiel's work and put it to one side as not really reflecting what's happening in the real world, where there is a rapid energy transition. We forecast a carbon tracker that electric vehicles will be cheaper than the internal combustion engine within a few years. And at that point, um, oil is going to have to compete with a cheaper competitor. Uh, but there, but there are 1.3, Mark, there are 1.3 or something billion vehicles in the world, you know. <laughs> so all of these transitions, all these new technologies and these new solutions, they're dealing, you're, you're, you're in a situation of an of a extant base, which is massive. Yeah, I think what we have to look at how financial markets react. So what happens is that when a new technology comes in and takes all of the growth, financial market rewards the new entrant, not the incumbent. And you can see that in evidence throughout history, really. But the most classic example of that, I think, is the BlackBerry versus the iPhone. Um, you know, the BlackBerry, it didn't lose market share. It didn't, when the iPhone arrived, it didn't go 1%, 5%, 12%, 18%, 50%. Actually, what happened is that iPhone came in it took 5% of the market, and then within two years, it took 50% of the market, and then it took all of the market, which is why if you ask teenagers today, what do you think of the BlackBerry, they look at you rather curiously as to what you're talking about. And so what that reveals is that technology can, can move incumbents to one side, and if you look at uh, the performance in markets of um, the new entrants, which is why a Tesla and it would be worth more than a General Motors and why an Amazon would be worth more than a Walmart, investors reward the new technologies that have a, a, a competitive edge. And so when renewables arrived in Europe, um, when the renewables reached us 2 to 3% of the market, um, they were able to, to destroy really the financial returns uh, of the incumbent um, coal-fired power generators 
And over 10 years, when uh, renewables arrived really in 2007 to 2017, over that 10-year period, the share prices of the utility companies in Europe lost somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of their value. And if you look at if you look at if you look at the listed coal sector, is even better example. Just two years within coal reaching its peak demand, uh, the the coal majors went bankrupt, and uh, and and uh, share prices collapsed. So what what I think the listeners should be thinking about is not purely market share, but how investors respond. And I think the evidence shows that investors move very quickly against traditional incumbents who can no longer compete on price with the old incumbent technology. Well, it's a very interesting argument and very interesting to hear your perspective there. But in, in a sense, to what extent does it really matter? These companies are on the stock market from a purely financial perspective and, and maybe even a little bit more. But clearly it matters in terms of returns. And you say that you know, company share prices fall. But we're talking about 10 years or something, 10 to 12 years to half our use of fossil fuels, the kind of scale of transformation that we're looking at. And you mentioned the coal companies and so forth, but coal is still going strong. This is the reality in India and in, in, in China and, and being financed internationally. So having a bad year or a bad decade on the stock market, I mean, the fossil fuel, I mean, Exxon is one of the biggest company, was the biggest company in the world, no longer, still hugely powerful and vast sums of money involved and we have to say vested interests as well. Yeah, I mean... You know, Carbon Tracker was set up really to take on the fossil fuel industry with financial arguments. It's the incumbent. It's massive. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry. You know, we're, as I said, we're just 25 of us. But the community that really the fossil fuel industry is beholden to is, is not is obviously government, but really it's, it's, it's shareholders, it's bankers. And when it's shareholders and the bankers no longer have faith in the business, then the management know the writing is on the wall. And, um, you know, the Oil & Gas UK, they wrote earlier this year to their members highlighting some of the biggest risks the industry faces in, in the coming year. And one of the things they listed was financial institutions no longer liking fossil fuels. And I think that one that is evidence of is that um, finance is the soft un- underbelly of the fossil fuel dragon. Um, and that there's chance for campaigners and for climate scientists and advocates really to make the case and the financial community will be listening. So whilst we're dealing with a huge industry in the fossil fuel industry, there's an even bigger one, the financial community, which is beginning to turn its face against its future. And that really is the message for, for, for listeners to hear, is that whilst we need to move urgently uh, off of fossil fuels, we're beginning to get very powerful allies in the financial community and the regulatory community that will act and stand with science, with the science and against the fossil fuel industry. Yes, right. And you feel confident within the kind of time frames that we're looking at that these kind of changes can actually happen? Um, I think the trend now is to making fossil fuels increasingly unbankable. I think the cost of capital for for oil and gas is going up and the cost of capital for renewables is going down. These are very positive signs. Um, change won't happen overnight. However, change will happen much quicker than people um, believe. And that um, today, if you look at 
the car manufacturers, nearly every major car manufacturer is announcing huge investment programs measured in the tens of billions of dollars to retrofit factories with uh, electric vehicles. And I'm hearing some from some of the Japanese car manufacturers, they're literally designing and going through the very last phase of cars that will be in, using the internal combustion engine. And so as these cars work their way through the system and electric cars work their way into the system, I think what this will do is take away demand for, for oil and gas. Now, why is that important? Is if you're producing oil and gas, if it costs you, say, $40 a barrel to get your oil out the ground and the market price is $40 a barrel, you're not actually making any money uh, in producing and selling oil and gas. And that's what investors are looking for, is an industry which can no longer charge uh, monopolistic prices. There, you know, there used to be the time when you could get oil and gas out the ground for $10 a barrel and sell it for 100 Those days are increasingly past because there's now a cheaper alternative. And the idea that, you, that oil companies can protect very high prices is no longer credible because people will just go out and buy a much cheaper electric alternative that instead of costing $50 a week to run, will cost you a few dollars a week to run. And that's the amazing transformation that we're going to see around the world in the next 10 years is this very rapid switch to electric vehicles. We could have talked about solar versus gas versus coal. In many parts of the world, new build solar is cheaper than new build gas and certainly new build coal pretty much anywhere around the world. And, and that, that also is chipping away and taking away uh, fossil fuel power generation. It's the chipping away bit. I mean, I, you, I hear what you're saying and the retrofitting of the manufacturing, but over something like one and a half billion cars and trucks, you cannot retrofit those. And in the time frames we're talking about, five, seven, no, ten I, years. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about car fleets being retired and turned over. You know, so many people today lease their car for three years. They then hand their car back and take on a new lease. Um, and so what you're seeing is that people will not hold on, like certainly in the European markets, will not hold on to their car for 10, 15, 20 years. They will go and hand it back and go and get themselves a new one. And I think what we'll see is amongst small vans, amongst cars, exactly the same thing will happen is car companies will be producing and, and, and offering electric vehicles instead of the internal combustion engine. And we'll see a, a, a rapid retirement of, of the older vehicles and they replace them with cheaper and more efficient and cheaper to run um, electric vehicle alternatives. Yes, yes. yes. Now, you, 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 you said something quite interesting there as well um, about the, the, the profitability of the oil companies and so forth. And I guess one thing we've seen is the power of technology to reduce costs. We've seen new sources of energy like fracking uh, and, and, well, even if they ha hasn't been particularly profitable. What about the potential for new technologies to lower the cost? So they might not be able to sell the oil at such a high price, but they might be able to reduce the, their costs. Um, well, you know, when under cost pressures, most industries find efficiencies to drive out costs. But in the case of oil and gas and mining, you know, there's one, there's one important area of, of uh, cost, and that's health and safety. And we've seen what's happened with the Macondo disaster and, and elsewhere when um, uh, there were, were, you know, people didn't take the right approach to to, to protecting the environment or for health and safety, and we've seen disasters. And so those are costs that you can't really strip out. 
Whereas in the case of solar and, uh, and wind, we're seeing now bigger turbines, cheaper turbines, cheaper solar materials, and the cost downs is still a long way to go to improve the efficiency of, uh, of uh, both solar and wind, particularly of solar. Um, and this will make inevitable that renewables will replace the burning of coal and gas as a dominant form of power generation. Yes. What about the other argument that, um, and I guess Vaclav Schmil, but other people have talked about, is that you know the history of energy transitions is to more denser, um, which have more more impact, uh, more concentrated energy forms, and we're now talking about moving in the other direction with these uh, renewable energy sources. Yeah, I think there's another trend which is distributed energy. So instead of having uh, power generated in large concentrated centres, which is then sent around uh, your your country over you know power lines, we'll move to a decentralised, um, less capital intense system of local solar, local wind, and biomass. And um, and uh, that I think will be the uh, the death now really of the big. A large concentrated power, um, power generating centers is distributed power. And um, there'll still be the need for industrial uses. And so, but we may see, you know, like you've seen in the US, um, high usage of power being co located against uh, solar units and um, uh, less possible in areas where there's a scarcity of land, but certainly possible in other parts of the world. That's very interesting. Now, you, you mentioned what uh, before what, what companies uh, are reporting, I guess. Can you talk a little bit, uh, it's a big topic I know, about accounting and disclosure and how that's evolved? Um, are, are you happy with the pace of change there from when yeah, you started there's still out? Some, there's still some interesting thinking around um, what's known as going, going concern accounting, where you've got coal, oil and gas companies uh, still saying that you know that they they are fine and have a going concern with their business, and yet if you look at the Paris Agreement, it's quite clear that large fossil fuel infrastructure should be written down over the next ten twenty years. And I am concerned that uh, fossil fuel companies are not writing down their assets, and that's an interesting area of debate and discussion for uh, accountancy firms as to whether. Uh, they're properly carrying the value of assets on their books. So let's, for example, there's $25 trillion worth of fixed assets in the fossil fuel economy that need writing down over the next two decades to be consistent with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And are companies writing down their assets? Well, no, they're not. And so we need to be looking at that. Why, why are coal-fired power stations and oil business still saying that 10, 20 years' time they still think that their assets will be used and, and viable. So there, you know, we're concerned about what accountants are saying to shareholders, to investors, when they read accounts about what is what about the business viability of, of fossil fuels. So um, we also think that around disclosure, when you file a disclosure document to the stock exchange, uh, you have to, to, uh, to really to sort of, be clear and true and honest about what you're saying. And what we're finding is that companies are still saying, oh, yeah, there's a rosy future for our, for our business. And I think even the year before Peabody Coal went bankrupt, they were telling their shareholders that things were 
were looking good in years ahead and they went bankrupt very quickly. So we have a concern about whether there's um, companies are not really being open and honest and, and, and truthful with their shareholders about really the threats that, that are being posed to their industry. That's, that's very interesting. What drives change uh, here, Mark? And as you say, it's been some years since your first report came out and, 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 and pointed directly at this question about the value of uh, assets, I guess. Um, how, mu- how much has happened there? And, and, and is the momentum building? Or can you just talk a little bit about the context in which the change yeah, is happening? I think the real change is, is um, investors and banks, when you're lending to a coal company or an oil company, are deeply concerned about the viability of your business models and the future. And that's why they're more skeptic. And even now, the shareholders are worrying whether companies are being truthful and honest. So the disclosures we're expecting to see coming from this task force on climate-related financial disclosures, where every company and investor is being expected to disclose how they're managing climate risk, there's going to have to be a lot of reading and a lot of analysis as to whether they're getting anywhere close to being honest with the truth. Yes, absolutely. How, how, how much is at stake for the banks? And are we, you know, could you, are there scenarios where we could see financial crashes like 2008? I, I don't believe there'll be a financial crisis uh, linked to climate change uh, right now, but only if companies transition, particularly fossil fuel companies, and investors are on top of analyzing the risks. Um, I would have a concern if we were 10 years on and the real changes hadn't started. And so I think there isn't a crash pending, but we have to be super cautious to make sure that businesses and investors are moving in the right direction. So what's next for you, Mark, and your work? So Carbon Tracker, we um, are going to work with investors that want to be, what I say, more assertive with the fossil fuel uh, economy. So investor interest is definitely growing. So that's the next phase for Carbon Tracker is to do more, go deeper and work clo- more closely with investors, whether they are divesting or challenging company boards, because the time right now is for us to be throwing everything at this problem. Uh, the climate crisis isn't going away. And the the, the first urgency of now is it's a phrase that's never more pertinent than on the climate crisis we need to be getting our skates on and moving much more quickly than we've ever done well i wish you the very best of success with that mark and thank you so much thank you for your interview today fergal great thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting it would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media you can sign up at itunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes